2: I was intensely bullied, not only because I was overweight, but because I was, like, obsessed with the craft and felicity and, <laughs> and all these things that kids were like, you know, what are you doing? And I think it was hard every day to go to school and to not be very cool. I'm Lady Love. Like a lady, like a lady, like
0: a lady, like 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 I like like have enough. Well, hi, Kristen. Oh, well, hello, Caroline. <laughs> and hello to all of y'all out there. So Kristen and I have been hustling behind the scenes on our next season of Unladylike, which starts September 29th.
1: Yeah, and whew, we have. Some major unladies lined up next season. We're talking Big Frida. We're talking Samantha B. But today,
0: we're sharing a special bonus conversation with y'all with playwright and Emmy-nominated TV writer
1: Stacy osai Kafour. Stacy's first TV gig was on the sci-fi network show Happy. And from there, she's gone on to write for Pen15, Watchmen on HBO, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge's show Run. Now, back
0: before Stacy was this wildly successful TV writer, she was a self-proclaimed outcast and weirdo. A few months ago, we talked with Stacy about how tapping into her weird authentic self gave her the confidence boost to write her breakthrough play, how that play got her a TV writing gig, and how she combined all of it to go after her dream job.
1: But first, we're talking to Stacy about her number one dream TV show growing up.
2: Can you become? Can you become a new version
0: of you? So, Stacy, we thought we would warm up a little bit because uh, we were delighted to find out that one of your favorite things in the world. Is felicity <laughs> because oh, we're obsessed shit. too so <laughs> so what what is it about felicity?
2: Well, it's a couple things. I think for me, growing up i I didn't realize it until. Now, but I was really obsessed with the WB. Like, um, <laughs> <laughs> remember the WB? Oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah. The children out there will be like, "What is she talking about?" <laughs> and I think for me, I became obsessed with Felicity because she was like, I mean, obviously Carrie is stunning. I'm talking about her, like I know her, but <laughs> I think what really affected me was it. It was about this. Woman who didn't know what she wanted, but she knew she wanted Ben. And mm-hmm. saying it now, it's like such an eye roll, but I just thought it was so cool that she didn't do anything that her parents or friends wanted her to do. And she like just dropped everything and moved to New York for this guy. And like as an 11 year old or 12 year old, I was like, yes. Hey! What are you doing here?
1: Hi! I'm, this is, I'm going, this is where I'm going. I totally forgot you were going here. That
0: is so unbelievable. I know this girl from high school. This is Susan. This is, um, this is, uh, um... Felicity. Felicity, wow. Alright, so I'll see you around.
2: And I just told myself that I was going to do the same thing Felicity did. And obviously... I mean, there wasn't a boy that I was, like, in love with and moving to New York for, but I researched that, like, the school that they were modeling it after was NYU, and so I decided that when I was going to turn 18, that that was the school I was going to go to. So (laughs) it's crazy to say it now, and, you know, when I did turn 18 and I auditioned for NYU, I didn't get in, and so it was heartbreaking and all that stuff. And obviously I realized I was not in a TV show and not Felicity, but then I auditioned my sophomore year and then I did get in. And so I moved, I dropped everything and moved to New York.
1: Did you also um, like seek out a job at Dean and DeLuca just
2: to really round it out? (laughs) Absolutely. And they were like, no ma'am. And I was like, please. And it's crazy because I think when I went in there I couldn't afford, like, not even a bagel. I think it was, like, $7 for an onion bagel. (laughs) But I was, like, for me, like, walking Dean and DeLuca was, like, walking into a museum. Felicity just had an extreme, profound effect on me. And even now, I go back and just watch the pilot just because it makes me feel good.
1: So getting a little bit into your work— Two words that we noticed um, while researching up on you, um, two words that positively came up a lot to describe (laughs) your work, either by, like, your own words or other people describing your work, were dark (laughs) and weird. (laughs) So I was wondering what those words, those two words, mean to
2: you. I think, if I'm honest, both of those words, like, growing up had a negative connotation for me. I think people often thought I was extremely weird and, you know, I was a pretty dark kid in terms of the stuff that I was into. I mean, Felicity isn't that dark, but I was really into Buffy, obviously, but also these V.C. Um, Andrews books where, like, it's just, you know, murder and incest and then <laughs> I think a lot of my friends were reading Goosebumps, which I was into, but then like my sister was reading just R.L. Stein, so I was like, "Wait, what's that?" And so I kind of ditched Goosebumps because it was like PG, and got into R.L. Stein and the the adult books were called R.L. Stein, and so um, I would read those a lot, and those kind of just shaped my mind, I think. I was obsessed with a lot of stuff, but I didn't want to read the kitty shit. I really wanted the adult (laughs) books, and I fought really hard to like trick my parents into getting me the stuff and pretending it was a PG. And um, that's just to show you the kind of kid I was. I just like, I was beyond curious. Like, I wanted the content, I wanted, I just wanted to grow up really fast.
0: Well, so what did you want to be when you grew up?
2: Well, first, I really, I was obsessed with 2020, um, Barbara (laughs) Walters. Loved it. This is 2020. So, um, yeah, I really wanted to be a reporter. I thought that was really cool. And as I grew up, I decided, like, what I really wanted to be was an actress. I just was like, you know, everyone was telling me, that I needed to sit down and I was too loud and like all this shit. And I was getting in a lot of trouble at school um, to the point where (laughs) everybody else's desk was like um, around each other. My teachers were so fed up. They just put my desk in a corner facing (laughs) the fucking wall. What? Oh, yes. They thought I had ADHD and and maybe I do. I don't know. My mom was like, just drink a glass of milk every day and you'll be fine. Um <laughs> just the Midwest. But I was, um, I was acting out a lot in school and um, my parents finally decided to put me in an acting class. And that's when I really started to blossom as a, a human being and realized that I didn't have to be a terrorizer to get what I wanted. And then from there, (laughs) even though acting was something I really, really wanted to do, I was always writing just, like, poems about boys and short stories. And I remember I went to summer camp and and wrote a play um, about this girl who seems like she's perfect, but she's not. And I, like, tried to make everyone at the day camp be in this play. And, like, I think those two things... I was really um, obsessed with. But I would say acting was was what I was like, this is what I'm born to do. And so it's been really interesting to, like, (laughs) you know, um, be more successful in writing. But it's also, you know, acting's really fucking hard.
1: Well, and not just, like, success in writing, but success, like, as initially, like, as a playwright in particular, which is also just, like... I don't know, in my in my little bubble, that's just not a job title that I hear all that often. So I was curious about what what about plays in particular and
2: writing plays um, initially drew you in? Well, I think when I got into NYU, everyone was so serious about the craft. And I just like hadn't seen that before. You know, I came from a town where everybody made fun of people like that. And so them just hammering in on us to focus on the text, I, I started to just like fall in love with plays and decided like I was going to write a play. And so I was like, what am I going to write my first play about? And of course I wrote it about a boy and it was a guy that <laughs> I was like, my high school boyfriend that I was seeing on and off and we had finally broken up and he was in town for one night. He came to New York for this like journalism thing. And he was like, they put me up in like a really fancy hotel room. You should come and see me. And of course I did. And so the play is about like that one night that we had together and like the hotel room and all the things that like we talked about and, kind of resurfaced. And then after I wrote that play, I acted in it with a student at NYU that was my friend and we put it up and, you know, charged people to go and it just felt so good. And I was like, instead of auditioning for shit where I'm like the slave and I don't have any lines, like I can be doing my own stuff and and people can see me that way and maybe I'll get roles that way and also get a writing job that way. I've heard from other playwrights that they, you know, in the beginning, you know, Thomas Bradshaw said this to me, called me and was like it's really weird that like you haven't had a production and yet you are a TV writer because I think Usually for playwrights, you you have a successful production, you know, off Broadway or on Broadway, and then the TV world hears about you and they pluck you out of obscurity and you move to LA, and that just wasn't my experience. I was in New York for almost ten years, and it, it just it wasn't working out. I was putting up my own readings and kind of trying to pay people to come to them and blind emailing agents and them just being like, who the fuck is this? And no, I'm not going to come to your play. And I haven't heard of you. And, um, it was just really depressing and too hard. And so I moved to LA for a change. And because I was seeing a guy who's now my husband who was living here. And, um, after I was in LA for about a year and a half, that's when I got my first job.
0: Yeah, so your first TV job was Happy on the Sci-Fi Network, but that actually happened because of a play you wrote after you moved out to L.A. that hadn't even been produced yet. So tell us about that play.
2: The play is called Hangman. It's about a black man whose body is hanging from a tree in Mississippi. He's dead. And a white woman discovers his body and because the image is so grotesque and disgusting and an image she has never seen before in her life, she falls in love with him and decides that she has to figure out who killed him. And I was writing this play when Rachel Dolezal was kind of having her moment. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I wanted to write this play kind of about her but also about like what does it mean to be black and what is this obsession that i see some white people have with blackness and so that was a play and then you find out at the end that it wasn't like a hate crime that the guy actually was doing erotic asphyxiation and so he was getting off in the woods and he accidentally Um, hangs himself. And that's, you know, his story. But I think it was the wildest play I had ever written. Um, There were so many people that were like, the reason why you're not successful is you haven't written a dinner party play or you haven't written like your African play. You haven't written your I'm in love with this guy play. And so I did all of those plays. And I think, Someone even said to me, "You, you're, the next play you need to do is your school shooter play, because these were the plays that we were told as playwrights would get you a production. And um, every time I did it, no one cared or wasn't good enough, and probably because I was chasing that result. And so Hangman was the first time where I was like, I don't give a fuck if if people like me or not or understand what I'm trying to say. I'm just going to write this play from my heart. And it is extremely weird and very violent and incredibly racial. But it has helped me. You know, I'm still using it as a sample for for jobs. And so I feel very lucky (laughs) or or happy that I finally said, just fuck everybody else. And I wrote this play.
1: What did it take in terms of like time and just kind of the emotional processing to actually do that thing that you're talking about, which is saying like, fuck, fuck everybody else. I'm going to stay true to like, this is my idea. This is my voice and my vision. And I'm just going to write it out. Like, it sounds, it sounds so easy.
2: Like, was it?
1: Wasn't that easy?
2: No, I mean, it wasn't. I I would probably say it took me the 10 years of being in New York to come to that conclusion because I wasn't the actress that people really wanted. It, It was really hard to get jobs and to get a callback, or to be seen, or when I was seen, they were like, "You, you know, you're not really pretty enough for the ingenue, and you're not, um, you know, you talk really proper, and you're not the ghetto woman that we're looking for for this role." And so I found myself constantly frustrated by that. And then in the the writing world, it was just so clicky in New York, and it took years. And even after I did that, even after I was acting in readings of other people's plays and then doing readings of my own, it still wasn't producing income, which is like what you fucking need to exist. And so the the reason why I, I had to say fuck it was because everything else that I was trying, it just wasn't working. Um, And when I tried, you know, when I perm my hair or when I tried to do the dinner party play or tried to be, you know, extremely skinny, it still didn't yield any of the results that I thought it did. And so it's like, why not just be myself? You know, why not be that weird dark kid who likes Felicity because no one seems to care either way. And so I think it probably took me my whole life to come to that realization and to write the play. And um, at the end of the day, we are artists and we have to just um, do whatever we want, whether there's cursing or a dick or Rachel Dolezal. And so, (laughs) yeah, it was was really hard to make that decision, but I'm so glad that I did. And so I know it's such an eye roll cliche thing, but I, I truly feel like being myself has really saved me across the board and it it's what has gotten me all these incredible jobs and it's it's the only advice I have is just to like just be yourself because people can tell anyway when you're faking
0: okay y'all we're gonna take a quick break when we come back Stacey finds herself in the offices of Damon Lindelof creator of HBO's Watchmen don't go away
2: was like, oh, you know, this show is, this show is me. It's going to be like extremely sexual and racial and violent and dark and weird. And I was like, I I have to figure out a way to get on the show. We're back
1: with Stacey Asai Kufour. The show that Stacey's talking about is HBO's superhero drama Watchmen, based on the 1986 comic book series. It has not only racked up a ton of Emmy nominations this year, it also helped shed new light on the Tulsa race riots of 1921. And y'all, if you have not watched Watchmen, do yourself a favor. I, I was just obsessed with it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and Watchmen's creator is Damon Lindelof, who also produced Lost and created The Leftovers. In other words, this
1: Damon dude is a very big deal in Hollywood. Will you tell us about asking Damon to hire you as a writer on mm-hmm. oh my God. Watchmen?
2: <laughs> yeah, I had gotten a call from my agent about Watchmen. I had just finished happy. And everybody told me, they were like, look, your your second job is the hardest job to get. It's going to take you about two years to get another job. And so we had just moved and didn't have much money. And I was really freaking out. Even though I was making money, I was so much in debt that I had to go back to babysitting um, to make the rent. And so when I got the call about Watchmen, my agents were like, look, um, he's, He's looking for someone who had been a former cop. So I was like, okay, that's not me. And he's looking um, for someone who's like really funny and has a sense of humor. And I was like, okay, that's, you know, I can check that box. And then he was looking for like someone who had connections to the South or Southern. And he had read Hangman you know, um, my play that takes place in Mississippi and my grandparents on my mother's side are from Mississippi. And so I felt like, okay, th- you know, I, I can check two out of the three on the box. And I remember uh, going to the library and getting a copy of Watchmen because I couldn't afford to buy it at that time and just reading it all before my interview with him And I was so nervous, and I picked, like, 12 different outfits and finally settled on, like, this ice cream colored top with a short blazer. I don't know if you guys remember short blazers, but it would just come up to your tit. It was really embarrassing. (laughs) Oh, yes, yes. Remember Uh, those? Yeah, yeah. But for some reason, I was like, Damon will love this short blazer. And so that was my outfit, and I got there, and I was super nervous and had to drive to Santa Monica, you know, I come into his office and it's like a whole nother world. There's like, you know, pictures of him and J.J. Abrams, which, of course, I'm like, I, 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 it takes me a moment because of Felicity. And I'm like, I have to just swallow that for a second. I think there's a picture with him and Tom Cruise. This is like big stuff. This is big stuff. And, um, you know, um, my interview with him was just incredible, and he pitched the show to me, basically, how it was going to be a Black superhero who disguises himself as white to fight crime, and I was so into it, and so I I just... When he said that to me in that moment, I was like, I have to be a part of this show. Watchmen was the first time where I felt like, oh, this is a show that I can really lend my voice to. And then towards the end of our interview, Damon is like, so I want to be honest with you. There's 40 other people interviewing for this job. (laughs) Um, I'm going to whittle that down to 10 I remember when he said 40 people that I was just like fuck me I'm I I have to like find a way to to stand out and during my interview with him we were joking around a lot and and I think we had a good rapport but I didn't know if he could tell how serious I was about it and so you know as the meeting is wrapping up he's like you know I'll I'll let you know and and have a good day and he like gets up and goes back to his desk and his assistant comes in to usher me out. And I don't know what came over me, but I was just standing there and he was sitting behind his desk and we were just like staring at each other. And I was like, "Um, I really want this. And he like kind of chuckled a little bit and he was like, okay. And I was like, no, I, I, I think you should hire me. And he was like, Okay. And um, I, I don't know. I, I just wanted him to know that it, it meant something to me and that he should take a chance on me because at that time I, I had only gotten happy. I didn't have a, a production. I was poor. I had also just recovered from the flu and um, I just wanted it so bad. And People say never show that you're desperate, but at that time I just needed him to understand that um that he should choose me and I'm glad that he did.
0: Well, and it sounds less like showing your quote-unquote desperate as just being very clear and upfront. Is that something that you had struggled with in the past or do you generally consider yourself kind of an upfront person?
2: I'm definitely an upfront person, but not like that. I think like I'm up front <laughs> with my friends and my family. I I you know, it, it it felt like someone was asking me to meet with like with Oprah at that time. It was just the mm-hmm. biggest person for me in the industry to meet with and like I've asked him you know what he felt when I did say, you know, please hire me or take a chance on me and he he said that in my interview with him, he just, like, liked me. He just felt like we were friends, and I guess that's nice. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I don't know what he saw in me to to choose me, but I'm glad he did.
1: Okay, so you, know, you get the job to be a writer on this big HBO show, Watchmen. Amazing. Once you were working on the actual show— What was it like
2: in the writer's room? You know, I couldn't really find my footing. I, um, Everyone was so incredibly intelligent and famous, you know. There were so many people that I was so um, impressed by, but just like, you know, I I didn't feel like these were my peers, and um, Damon, after the room one night, he like pulled me aside and And we went into his office and he was just like, how are you doing? And I was like, you know, I'm okay. I'm blah, blah, blah. And he was just like, you, you should just be yourself. You know, I, I hired everybody for a reason. Everyone has a specific role and, you know, you may not have found yours yet, but I, I hired you for you. And I just want you to just, you know, relax into that. And I, I really feel grateful for that because I think my instincts, I went back to that old thing of thinking I had to be a certain way or when he said that to me, it just reminded me like, yeah, I can just fucking be myself and like tell a couple jokes and talk about Felicity and pitch (laughs) and pitch what I want to pitch. And I think the very next day was when, I pitched uh, the sister night idea in terms of her being a nun and being like a kick-ass nun, and so I I feel so grateful that he did say to me the day before to just be yourself, um, and and that's what came about from that. So,
1: okay, you are in this Watchmen writer room, you are you know, writing an Emmy-nominated episode of Pen15. You're working <laughs> with, uh, just like, palling around uh, with Phoebe Wallerbridge, working oh on, like, God. her new project. So, what would young Stacey say if oh she could see
2: you now? Um, I think she would be like... Wow, you did your thing. You did (laughs) your thing. I think she would be really proud. Only because for a very long time, I was so depressed about being other. I think it's one thing to be weird, but then to be a Black woman on top of that and to not be you know commercially beautiful or, or whatever and um to be dark skinned and then on top of that like i said to be overweight i think i had a lot of moments growing up where you know i wasn't suicidal but i was definitely like why am i here like what what was what is my purpose in life um and so i definitely feel like that kid who just felt so alone at times or was cast out for like liking books or you know talking proper i think she would be really proud of of where i am now but it's it's wild um to think of that trajectory i'm i'm definitely i feel so lucky um to to be here and what advice if you could would you go back and give her i would just say don't care you shouldn't care what anyone thinks and it's the hardest thing and it's something i still struggle with now but it just truly doesn't matter and to just um stay true to yourself and be yourself because it's the greatest gift never never in my life did i think from writing a play about a black man Loving to like go in the woods and choke himself with his dick. That Then a year after that, I would be in Damon's office. Never in my life. And so I just think like, don't be afraid to be yourself and be bold and be true to yourself. Because I truly think that when you are, people can see it and they want to be around that. And it truly pays off
1: okay unladies, ladies fellow weirdos what advice could you give your younger self was there ever a time when people told you to stop being weird or too much let us know you can email us at hello at unladylike.co find us on social at unladylike media or join our private facebook group and jump into the thread for this bonus episode and if y'all want to watch Stacey's star continue to rise,
0: go follow her over on Instagram at StaceyAma. Or check out the many shows she's been involved in. You got a lot of good watching ahead of you. Happy, Pen
1: 15, Watchmen, Run. I mean, honestly, like some of my favorite television is right there. <laughs> Visit unladylike.co to find this episode's sources and transcript. And if you want to support Unladylike directly and binge some brand new bonus episodes, including a two-parter on Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, head over to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia.
0: Nora Ritchie is the senior producer of Unladylike. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tedson. Sound design, mixing, and additional music is by Andy Christens. Executive producers are Chris Bannon, Daisy Rosario, and Unladylike Media.
1: This podcast was created by your hosts, Kristen Conger. And Caroline Irvin of Unladylike Media. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new season of brand new episodes. And y'all don't want to miss it. So make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike. Find us in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, got a problem? Get on Ladylike.
0: Like, as my therapist says, you, you can only control what you say. You can't control other people's reactions. So you got to yes. be honest.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Wow. <laughs> I need a therapist.
0: I'm just saying that. I just say that out loud to myself every once in a while just to remember, you know, just to read yeah.
2: First. No, that's good.
0: Stitcher.